Thank you for listening to sermon podcasts from the Anglican Church Noosa. This is the fifth and final in our series on Exodus, Let My People Go. This sermon was preached at Perigian by Linda Johnson on the topic of the Ten Commandments. The Bible reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be here. Uh, Thank you for having me. And uh, it's really great to be concluding this series on Exodus today. I hope you've been enjoying it. And for those of you who are here for the first time, I'm sorry, but this is the end of the story. (laughs) It's actually not the end of the story, but it's the end of our series. There's a lot more of the story to go. But today we are wrapping up as we look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, And it's an interesting place to land, isn't it, in this five-week series. And one of those tricky questions that we as Christians face from time to time is the question of what do we do with the Ten Commandments? What do we do with them? That is, to what extent do the Ten Commandments still apply to us? And what is their place in our Christian life and in our secular life? Clearly they were of central importance to the people of Israel. But what about us? Why are they important today? 
You remember last week we had that momentous event of the saving of the Hebrews through the Red Sea and the demise of the Egyptians. After hundreds of years of things getting worse and worse and worse for the people that God had made a covenant with through Abraham, God listened to their cry, he responded and achieved their freedom. It's quite a remarkable thing. They praised God in song after coming through the Red Sea. And in the time between last week and the crossing of the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments today, I'm just going to give you a quick recap of what happened. After coming through the Red Sea, they praised God in song. It was just amazing. God provided the manna, the quail and water. He had given them victory over the Amalekites. And with the advice of his father-in-law, Moses had sorted out how that many people could live and function together as a society. They had systems put in place of how to sort out disagreements and they'd also pulled together a leadership structure in three months. That's, that's the time frame that we're talking about. From last week, crossing the Red Sea, to this week, receiving the Ten Commandments, in three months, all that had happened. The things were going quite well. They were working well together. We come today to the central moment of God forming the nation of Israel when he would renew his covenant with them. Significantly, they've arrived at the same place where Moses first got his call from God to go to Egypt, Mount Sinai. That was where the burning bush happened. That was way back in week one. And what matters is the nature of the covenant he's about to make with them. It's not actually a new covenant. It's a renewal of the covenant God had made with Abraham more than 400 years previously. God had promised Abraham, do you remember, that he would make him a great nation, would give him land, would make his name great, and that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. So now God was renewing that covenant. The people had become great in number, that's for sure. We're estimating that the number that went through the Red Sea was about 1.5 million. No wonder they needed structures to work out how they're going to be a society. God was taking them to the land he'd promised and through them all nations would be blessed. Now today we read chapter 20 but I want to take you back to chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible there, please open it and let's have a look at what God says in Exodus 19 verses 3 to 6. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, those of you who know your New Testament, does that remind you of anything? 1 Peter. Just. So firstly, God reminds them of how he's defeated the Egyptians and carried them, as it were, on eagles' wings. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Their rescue and their survival in the desert are the result of God's goodness to them. But it's all been for a reason. And I want us to look at this because it's really important that we understand that before we get on to the Ten Commandments. God has a purpose for them, which is twofold. Firstly, it's to make them his treasured possession out of all the people. Now, this is a special term uh, that was used in those days of the king's treasured special treasures. You see, if you were a king in those days, everything in the land was yours. Makes sense, doesn't it? You owned everything. But of course, if you think about it, that meant that you really owned nothing. If you owned everything, what was really yours? Well, they overcame that by the king having what were called his special possessions. Things that belonged to no one else, things that he could call his own. And that's the idea that is there behind God calling the people of Israel his treasured possession. Of course, all the earth belongs to the Lord. All peoples belong to the Lord. Israel was to be his treasured possession. Secondly, they were to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That is, they were to be a nation who would form a bridge between God and the other nations. This is the first time that the idea of Israel being a light for the nations crops up. They're to be a people who are different from those around them and they're to be different for a purpose. That's what holy means. Their difference isn't meant to exclude the other nations. Rather, they are to show that by their life together, this is what God's ideal for all nations is. And that life is to be so attractive that the other nations will want to come and join. So how were they to show that they were different? How were they to show the nations what it meant to be in relationship with the living God? Well, by being obedient. By obeying God's law, which he was about to give them. That is what will make them distinctive. So three days later, they assemble at the base of the mountain and suddenly the mountain is surrounded by cloud. There's thunder and lightning and deafening trumpets blast. Can you imagine the knees shaking? <laughs> In fact, they're so scared that they keep well away and say, Moses, just, just you go up the mountain. Think. We'll stay here and you come back and tell us what he says. And you can just picture it, can't you? <gasps> you go. That's your job. You go do it. So the stage is set for God to tell the people how he wants them to live. The Ten Commandments are the beginning but there's a whole lot more. You need to keep reading Exodus. There's a whole lot more. And then the rest of the first five books of the Bible, just, just during the week sometime, have a go. The preliminaries are over. 
The people are convinced that God is a God to be reckoned with, an unapproachable God of power and might. But at the same time, we discover that paradoxically, he's a God who wants a special relationship with his people. He wants to know them personally. And the image that he's used in describing this is a very personal one. It's that of the mother eagle carrying the newborn eaglets to a new and safe resting place. And what he's about to give them aren't just the new rules for life. They are a provision that will allow the people to remain in a personal relationship with God. That's really key. Now, in chapter 19, there's an interesting repetition of particular phrases. And it's the phrases, go up, go down, go up, go down. That's repeated a number of times in chapter 19. And it's a movement of mutual coming together of two parties who are totally separated by an insurmountable gulf and yet God bridges that gulf coming down. Now I see that as an interesting parallel with the incarnation of Jesus. Think about it. How God in Christ came down to earth to meet with us, to identify with us, to do his great work of redemption. And in his coming, what does he ask us to do? He calls us, doesn't, doesn't he? To come to him. He called each of his disciples saying, come, follow me. And he also says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. God bridged that ultimate gap with us in Christ. And here in Exodus, we see God coming down to meet with Moses, with his people, to bridge the gap that was there then. And the laws he gives them are intended to maintain that bridge. Which is why Jesus said, I've come to fulfil the law, not to abolish it. It's key. Now, these Ten Commandments are a set of ground rules for life under this covenant with God, rules for relating to God and rules for relating to one another. So let's have a really quick look at them. Because otherwise we'd be here for ages if we were going to go through these. You can do that in Connect Group this week. You can get into it a bit deeper. But first, we need to note that they're to get their relationship with God right. No doubt in Egypt they'd been used to a multitude of gods. In fact, Pharaoh was regarded as a god. They had multitudes to worship back in Egypt. But now they were to learn that there was only one god to be worshipped and all those other ones are false. That was the first commandment. Similarly, they were not to make idols to aid them in worship. The creation of human hands has no place in the worship of the true and living God who created everything. God is far too great to be limited by the imagination of the human mind creating something which resembles God and worshipping it. Their worship wasn't of some unknown being, but an expression of a personal relationship that they had with the invisible God who had revealed himself to them. 
nor were they to use God's name in an empty way or a false way. To invoke God's name was to invoke God himself in all his holiness. My friends, what that means is OMG is off the table. The people are to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That is, it was to be different. It was to be a day on which they were not to work, nor were they to ask other members of the household to work, not even the slaves or the animals. Rather, it was a day for the community to be at rest, to enjoy creation just as God did, and by implication, to worship the God who made it all. Then we find a set of commands that outline how people are to relate to one another. I don't know if you've, you've ever worked out that the first four about our relationship with God and the six are about how we relate to each other and as a society. So the last six are a set of commands that outline how people are to relate to one another. You see, in order for them to form the sort of ideal community that God desires for everyone and for them to be assigned to the other nations because of their life together, how they relate to one another will be just as important as how they relate to God. So they are to show in their relationships with one another the same grace and love that God has shown them in rescuing them and in persevering with them despite all the grumbling that there was. To use a New Testament picture as God's adopted children, they are to exhibit the family characteristics of love and graciousness. And how will they do that? By honouring their parents, by preserving and valuing life, by faithfulness in marriage, by respect for property, by respect for truth, and by being satisfied with what God has given them. So how does this fit with us as Christians who live under the new covenant? (laughs) We're no longer part of the same covenant that these Ten Commandments were given under. We're now part of the new people of God under the Lordship of Jesus. So Paul tells us that we've died to the law. No longer has a hold over us. What do we do with that? Do we forget it and do whatever seems right? Or do we continue to consider that it's normative for Christian life? Well, I want to suggest three things that Jesus did with the law. Firstly, he said, as I've mentioned before, that he hadn't come to abolish the law but to fulfil it. And I hope that you can see that what the law was trying to do back then, Jesus was doing when he came. So the new, com- the new covenant doesn't do away with the Ten Commandments as the Christian's guide for doing God's will. But in fact, Jesus shows a much better way by his life and by his example, what it means to fully do God's will. 
In fact, God, uh, Jesus, do you remember? Jesus took the Ten Commandments and made them even more difficult. Do you remember? He said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, even if you just think badly of somebody, sorry, you've broken the commandment. So Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it and to make it even more expressively Christian and how we relate to God through it. Because Jesus made it better. Secondly, Jesus showed how the current interpretation of the law was in certain places mistaken. So he and his disciples were walking through the fields one Sabbath. Remember this story? And because they were a bit hungry, they picked some wheat and ate it. And the Pharisees slapped them on the wrist, didn't they? Accused them of breaking the Sabbath law. And he reminded them that the law was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. That is, the laws that had grown up around the Sabbath rest had actually robbed people of the ability to enjoy God's creation on that day. The day of rest had actually become a burden greater than the other six days put together. Thirdly, Jesus took the law and reinterpreted it to flesh it out to show how it should be interpreted for his time. So as I said, the prohibition against murder covers even the expression of anger. The prohibition against adultery is expanded to being lustful in our thinking. He told the Pharisees that tithing was no use unless it was accompanied by a desire for justice and mercy and faithfulness. So what Jesus did was to show that it wasn't good enough to have a nice, neat, coded set of laws to regulate our lives. What we needed is to behave the way God would. He said it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out. You see, he knew how good we are at putting on the righteous mask. We're all trained at it, aren't we? But what we've discovered, so sadly, in the church in the past few years is that the occurrences of moral failure among Christians and high-profile Christians is equally as bad as in the secular community. For those of you who are old enough, back in the 70s, there was Jim and Tammy Baker. There's been the downfall in recent decades of Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, Hillsong leaders. And it's not just in individuals, but in the institution as well. And the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse is so damning. And we as a church need to be shamed by that, deeply shamed, and to publicly apologise. What Jesus says is that we are to obey God's will right down at the roots of our being. And Paul puts it like this in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds 
so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As a church, we need to strive to reinterpret and reapply God's law in the face of the culture that we're in. We need to make sure that we are people of substance, that we are people of integrity, that we are people of consistency. And that substance and consistency needs to come from a personal knowledge of God and of his will for humanity and for us personally. We need to be the new Israel who show to those around us how God wants people to live under his authority, just as Jesus did. My friends, that won't be easy. It certainly didn't happen for the people in the desert. To take you back to Exodus, following chapter 20 now, do you remember what they did while Moses was up the mountain receiving this new covenant expressed. What happened? They built the golden calf and had an orgy. My goodness. How can you reconcile that with the previous few months that they'd had of God revealing himself to them in remarkable ways, of God showing his justice so powerfully, of unheard of creation miracles coming through the Red Sea, being fed by the miracle of manna, quail and water, which then enabled them to establish themselves as a functioning society of a heck of a lot of people. It doesn't make sense. And yet it was easy for them to do that. How easy it is for us to lose our substance, our integrity, and our consistency. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. So if we're interested in true spirituality, we will show it by being those who are constantly striving to do God's will as his Spirit works in us. And we can be so thankful that the grounding of that was all those thousands of years ago in God coming down and meeting with Moses to establish relationship, to build covenant. And our relationship with God continues to be established by covenant that we see in Jesus. Paul goes on later in Romans to say this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, love your neighbour as yourself. 
And we can't forget that loving our neighbour as ourself includes those we find unlovely. So what he's saying is that the law hasn't been done away with, rather it's been taken up in Jesus' law of love. So the Ten Commandments stand as a guide for us to what God's will is for his people, not just a simple set of rules to be followed, but as a basis on which we can deal with all of the complex and ambiguous situations of life. We apply what we've been given, as difficult as it is. We apply the love of Christ to our lives. And we need to remember that the purpose of the commandments is so we can understand how God wants his people to live. If we can understand that, and if what controls our decision-making is our love for God and for one another, then perhaps applying the commandments to today becomes just a little bit easier. Let's pray that God fills us with his spirit so that we will know that will and, more importantly, be able to do it whatever we're faced with today. Now, I, I am wondering if at this point um, anybody would like to ask a question or uh, to just throw it around. Is your mind going, or just a point of clarification? Is, is there, leave a minute or so and see if anybody's got a question. Is that okay, Alan? Yeah, absolutely. Don't necessarily expect an answer. I might be just as befuffled as you. Yes, Derek? Um, it's probably the fourth commandment to keep holy the Sabbath day that um, I guess perhaps is the one that we've departed from the most in the way that it was originally um, required. Um, that's a difficult one, I find, to uh, interpret in a modern mm. existence uh, what mm. that, how that really applies. Mm. So just for those of you who didn't hear, Derek is asking uh, or making a comment about the fourth commandment, which is about keeping the Sabbath day holy that perhaps as a society we have departed from that uh, a lot. Um, I, I kind of push back a little bit on the, that that one might be where we've gone the most of. I think uh, number one and two, uh, probably as a, as a world, we've done the, the most damage to, that is to only have one God and to, um, to not hold anything above God. I, I think we all succumb to that. Uh, and while we have to, with, about the Sabbath, yes, we can lament that our day uh, is no longer recognised in society, but I think then how, how we live as Christians with the concept of Sabbath is how we then present it to the world well. And I think we do that in our personal Christian life of how we live a Sabbath existence on a regular basis and and make sure that we look after ourselves because the Sabbath was made for us. Um, and and I, look, I put my hand up as uh, I am very bad at keeping my Sabbath. Very, very bad. <coughs> so when we come to the confession in a couple of minutes, that's one of the things that I did it again or I didn't do it again. 
but I take your point. And, the, and I think as Christians living in a society which is no longer has the basis of Christianity, although if you'll remember from this, our series on the air we breathe that people are blind to so much of what we hold to in society is Christian, but people are now denying it. Uh, and we certainly can lament that, but I don't believe we can impose it. Yeah, Bruce. How does Christ work on the cross? How does that change our relationship to the law? Mm. How does it change our relationship to the law? I, uh, so did you all hear that? How does Christ's work on the cross change our relationship to the law? I think this is where we have to grapple with what Jesus actually meant when he said, I've come to fulfill the law. And, and I think that one of the reasons that the law is the law is to enable us to meet God's requirements. And I put it in inverted commas because we never can, which Paul recognises, all have fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Uh, so what I see the cross of Christ being is the ultimate renewal of the covenant and that what Jesus did on the cross was both the judgment of sin and the redemption from sin and as the work of Jesus on the cross fulfills the law and continues to fulfill the law as we rest in that we know that forgiveness is ours and that the righteousness that we receive from that redemption then means that we fulfill the law in Christ that when God looks at us he actually sees Christ and his righteousness. He doesn't see our lack of fulfilment of the law anymore. So it's a much bigger answer than that, but that's just where I can't, where I land at the moment. Because I'm aware of, even as a Christian, my inability to, uh, to obey God for the first of my life or to love others as I should. Absolutely. For me, it's an impossibility to cross. Yes. Yes. So Romans 8, you mentioned Romans 8, but it says there's no condemnation. And that is the beauty of grace, isn't it? And there is, there is incredible grace in the Old Covenant, which a lot of people find it hard to see, but there is grace in the Old Covenant. But the expression of grace in the New Covenant is remarkable. And this is where I, 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 I guess I come in awe at what God has done on the cross is both mercy and grace. And those two things, you know, they're similar but they're very different. So mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And so we receive mercy and grace on the cross. And so mercy for when, because we know that we are sinners, but God gives us mercy, even though we don't deserve the freedom and the renewal, the grace is that God gives it to us. That's how Jesus fulfills the law, because it involves both mercy and grace. So it's just, it's, mercy is 
See if you can remember that. I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I always have to sort of make sure I say it wrong. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And can you see they're two? They're measured uh, similar, but wow, so different. The cross gives us that. And the cross fulfills the Ten Commandments and brings it life. Whereas the, the law on its own brings burden. The grace in Christ brings freedom and new life. Let's wrap it up there. Oh. Yes. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Because you can't just sit there and go, oh, this is like That's right. That's right. What is your response? That's it. Yeah. And that's part of what covenant is. Covenant is the two-way response. And that was why there was a God coming down and Moses and the people going up. Covenant is a two-way thing. And God's faithful in his keeping of the covenant. We too need to be faithful in keeping the covenant. But we don't get the result because of our obedience. We are obedient because the result is ours. And that's how we live with the basis of the Ten Commandments, living in that grace. Okay. Thank you, everybody. The Anglican Church Noosa is an evangelical Anglican church on the northern end of the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. Our vision is living to love and proclaim Jesus. Our core values are being Christ-centred, Bible-based, spirit-led and mission-shaped. If you have found this sermon helpful and would like to contribute to the ongoing ministry of ACN, please go to our website, anglicanchurchnoosa.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening.